so glad that you had it in you to advocate for yourself because some people are so scared to speak up, scared to say anything, and they don't want to be a bother. And that's what it is. That may have killed you, right? Yeah, no. And that's exactly what it is. The don't want to be a bother. I think that is so common in how women are told to behave, right? Like don't bother people. And like you said, it could mean your life. Like, but, and the thing is like, especially if you've gone through childbirth, if you're feeling that anything is feeling off, just go get it checked. And if it's not, if everything's fine, great. But you didn't bother anyone by getting it checked. What you did was ensuring that you will continue to live to then take care of this child that you just delivered um, and gave birth to. And it's just like, you have to listen to your body and you have to advocate in the healthcare system because no one else is going to do it for you. Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Mom Strength. I'm Sura Beach. I'm your host, and I'm so excited to have today's guest on. So I'm at, <clears throat> I'm just going through puberty right now, but um, <laughs> I met Sophia, I think it was in September, August, a couple of months ago. It's October now at a Sean Paul concert. My friend Rena was going with her friends and I was like, dude, like I love Sean Paul. Like this is awesome. I've never seen Sean Paul. So I joined them and we met up for a couple of drinks and then we went out dancing and I was like, I love this person. But then a few weeks later, a few months later, time is not a time is not clear to me right now. But I saw Sophia share this. I saw Rena and Sophia share this thing called Talk for Steps of Pride 2022 by the Get Real Movement. And it was a talk about Sophia and her parenting journey, about her parenting experience as a queer non-binary person. And I was like, people, we all, I learned so much from it and we all need to hear this because we all need to learn about this. Um, So we can not only do better for ourselves, but also for our kids and everyone in this world around us. So welcome, Sophia. I'm so happy to have you on here. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm I'm so happy to be here. And I'm, you know, thank you for listening to that keynote. I I really appreciate it. And that you invited me here to just talk more. I, I love it. Any opportunity to talk about myself, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> we're, we're the same. We, this conversation will be like four hours long. Uh, okay, so I'm going to actually do a, a, an official intro. Okay. So people kind of have a background of who you are. So Sophia, I didn't ask you this. How do you see your last name? Drolia. Drolia. Okay. Sophia Drolia is a non-binary parent to two who struggled with infertility for years and advocates where possible for a more inclusive fertility process and inclusive language and experiences for kids growing up with different families. Professionally, they are diversity, equity, and inclusion specialists who focuses on helping organizations create cultures of belonging to ensure people are seen, heard, valued, and given equitable opportunities to, tr- to thrive. 
I love this. It's um, a mouthful. It's a I, mouthful. <laughs> I, but I love this. Like, I, I feel like the world needs more you. One of the things that actually talking about belonging, it's one of those things that we all innately search for. We all want to belong. And we like we think we're looking for happiness. We think we're looking for love and we need love. But it's truly what we want is to feel like we belong. And I love that you are working with organizations to help create this culture. Um, we need that. So it's, it's it's a lot of hard work, though, like in terms of there's so much resistance. And it's funny, you know, you say that because it is an innate feeling of belonging. But the problem is there's a cool kids club mm. and then there's everyone else. And it's like, but we already belong. Yes. And we already feel good versus the rest of us. We're like, but hold on. We want to be at the cool kids table, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's just about making room at that table, making the table bigger, just breaking that table and creating a bigger one. Right. And that's, I think the issue is when you're already, when you don't see things as a problem, it's not because they're not a problem. It's just because they may not affect you or impact you in the same way. And I think we need to, you know, get our heads out of our asses long enough so we can (laughs) learn to see things from other people's point of view. And I always say like, you don't have to understand everything about someone, but you can still accept and listen and learn. It's Um, empathy, right? It's It's all about empathy. And it's, you would think it would be just more common practice to to have empathy, but it's really not because there's a, just so much selfishness. And I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of that too, right? It was like you were either empathetic or you're a selfish asshole. It's like there was no in between. It was <laughs> it's so true. Too, yeah. And I think that the hard part is too, that so many people weren't parented with compassion Mm-hmm. And, they, and then there's one of two things that can happen. You can grow up and be like, I didn't like that. I'm changing. Or yeah. you can be like, oh, that's just normal. I'm just going to yeah. continue this path. And I feel like that's what I see a lot too, is I'm like, you know, I do have empathy for certain people because I'm like, you had it hard, but that doesn't give you permission to then like put that same stress and trauma on everybody else around you because you haven't dealt with your own stuff. Right. Exactly. And we see that in workplaces. You probably see it all the time is like, all the time. dude, like this is this is more than just like a presentation. This is more about like life's work and like changing perspectives is is hard work. So kudos to you for doing it. <clears throat> Thank, Thank you, you for doing it. And I want to hear about. So let's start with who you are and kind of how you got into. I want to know about how you met your wife, actually. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I, we've uh, officially been married for 10 years. And uh, thank you. So we, we actually, okay, so this is a great story. Um, I'll keep it quick. But um, so (laughs) I actually live so I'm totally as, you know, queers can be as gay can be, but my entire life and everyone around me as straight as can be. Mm. So I've always lived a very straight life, but very openly who I am. And so I was on at the time, and I don't even know if this website exists, is Plenty of Fish. I've and heard, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this was like, I don't know, 12 years ago, I was on the site and I had put, I created a profile to find lesbian friends. I didn't, I, you know, I was in a relationship and um, I, I was just looking for friends. And so my wife, Tamara, uh, now my wife, she uh, reached out to me and she's like, hey, um, I think we'd, we'd, you know, really would get along. You know, it seems like we have a lot of common interests. And I was in a relationship at the time. So I wrote back and I was like, yeah, you know, seems great, but 
I'm in a relationship right now and I would, I'm just looking for friends. Dead silence. I didn't hear from her <laughs> at all. She was like, who the hell goes on here looking for friends? I, I was going to say, I feel like what I remember from people who were on Plenty of Fish was very much not a friend zone thing. <laughs> so you were like, you know what? I'm starting this up. So what happened after that? I, well, I, I did meet some people that oh, didn't did you? becoming friends, but you know, we, we tried golfing with someone, but yeah. Um. Anyway, so six months went by. It was a toxic relationship. Um, you know, I got out of it, bought a house, got my life together. And then I went back on plenty of fish. I was like, all right, I'm ready to date. And I was just planning to date. I was planning to date lots of women. I had this house in the beaches. I was excited, gonna, you know, just, just have fun. Live it up. Yeah. And totally. And then I go on, I see her little photo there. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try messaging her. She's hot. Um, you know, I'm going to try. So I messaged and I said, Hey, you know, I've sorted my life out. Let's get together. She wrote back, surprisingly, six months later, because I said, I don't know what your status is, wrote back. And she said, yeah, let's meet. It was May long weekend. So we met on May 23rd on Church Street in Toronto. And I looked at her and I literally said to myself, this is a person I'm going to marry. And um, we had an amazing conversation. We had some drinks. Um, Then I walked her to her car and she said, I'm going to it was Inside Out Festival, which is um, you know, like TIFF, but you know, it's the LGBTQ2S community and their films. And so she's like, I'm going tonight. If you, you know, if we can find tickets, do you want to join us? And it was her and her two friends. And I was like, yeah, sure. And she really wanted her friends to just get uh, like, to basically approve of me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I showed up, had a great time with them. And then a month later, she moved in. Uh, three months later, I proposed while we were on a trip uh, in Newfoundland. And then a year to the date on the day we met, we got married. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. I feel like that's like, I'm, I'm like, it's like a Bollywood romance story right now. Right. And <laughs> and that's, I mean, I grew up watching Bollywood. So I think I was just trying to find my, my Bollywood hero. <laughs> and you know what? I love that. I actually, my husband and I met on May 23rd too. Which is the May long weekend. And my daughter was born on May long weekend too. She's on the 21st. But um, yeah, we met for the first time at a rock climbing, like outdoor rock climbing camping weekend. And I was actually casually seeing someone at the time. And I saw him. I'm like, I really like this guy. You know what it was for me? It's so funny how it's subtle things. Like you were like, I love that we could have a conversation. And it just felt, it sounded like it felt very natural for you. It was the same for me. It just felt easy. Right. Yeah. And we're so used to dating being hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, but so. it was, you know what it was for me? It was her smile. And her smile still kills me every single time. Like it's, yeah, she has the best smile. Um, and I, I always say I'm a lucky, lucky human being. Um, you know, like the universe has been good to me. I love that. And I'm sure she says the same about you. Well, uh, you know, questionable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you have been married for 10 years mm-hmm. and you have two kids. We do. Yes. How old are your kids? Yeah. So our oldest is he'll be eight in January and youngest uh, just turned three in September. Nice. Yeah, Not an intentional age gap. I can, well, we can talk through that, but yeah. uh, we were really hoping that they would be very close in age. Yeah. Um. So my wife gave birth to our first and I was hoping to go through it very quickly because I was younger and I was like, yeah, I'm, I got this. I'm going to do this. 
And um, so we, I started trying when he was, I think, nine months old. Okay. So we, we were hoping for like a two year age gap at max, like, you know, thinking, yeah, it'll take a bit of time, but yeah, not the four or five year uh, gap that I think it's four and a half years between them. And so can you tell me about your, both of your experiences with getting pregnant with, um, having a family? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so I will say I I'm answering these questions cause it's on a, on a podcast, but if you, if you do look at my keynote, one of the things I say is Google these questions before you ask people, yeah. um, mostly because, and you know, it's not unique to just my experience. It's a lot of people who are trying to have babies. They have different experiences, right. And it's recognizing you, if you know a little bit about them, you could probably arm yourself with some more information before you yeah. go, um, you know, go right at them because there's a lot of vulnerability involved in, and, in, in the process. Right. And the one thing that stuck out to me is that people assume that one assumes that this is how you get pregnant. This is how you meet someone. This is how a relationship goes, but more and more what I see anyways, with the clients that I work with, there yeah. is no normal. Everyone no. is, I don't even think that your experience is different. I just think that we are all different. So, yeah, you know, yeah. going in with the assumption that this is how you get pregnant is just not, it's not right. So thank you yeah. for, thank you for bringing that up. And thank you for sharing this with us because it's true. People could Google a lot of things. There's answers <laughs> to everything online. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah. So with, with, so we decided that my wife would go first. So we decided Tamara would go first and that was primarily due to age. Um, I'm totally outing that she's older. Sorry, babe. Um, and, um, so we, we were like, yeah, okay, you go first. Cause you know, we, and we were cognizant that the process could take long. Cause we had some friends who had gone through it. Um, and it took, you know, six to eight months, um, to get pregnant. So we were like, okay. And what that means though, that six to eight months is that you spend weeks doing blood work every morning at 7am. And then you got, well, no, actually before all of this, we had to first pick a sperm donor. Right. And that process is super easy if you're looking for a Caucasian blonde blue eyes, tons of options, tons of options. Now, what we wanted was to find someone who looked like me. Now I'm South Asian. I have, you know, curly, dark, dark hair. Um, I'm very hairy. Um, <laughs> and, me too. <laughs> uh, right, we're just blessed with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I am lighter skin tone. And so these are the sort of things we're like the criteria we're going with in this search. So basically you can search online for if you, if you want a, an unknown donor in the sense of it's not someone, you know, yeah. Um, and so that's a process we, we chose. And so we went online and basically you're shopping for the sperm to make your future children. And so luckily it actually didn't take us long at all because we were so specific, this guy existed and I can't tell you how thankful I am for this man to to donate his raw materials for us to have a family like I I am so thankful for for him to do that I don't know his reasonings for doing it could it just been cash because in the U.S. you you get money um for donating but essentially we found a guy um who looked a lot like me um and had really thick has thick curly hair and we looked at him and we're like he's perfect and so we just bought a ton of sperm and so we I think we bought like six vials and you're looking at like fifteen hundred dollars a pop right wow yeah it's not cheap it's not cheap because there's so many 
like the 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 donate the person who donates gets money but then the clinic organizations there's just all this this is all privately funded right so it's tons of money and then when you go to retrieve the sperm from the sperm bank you got to pay you got to pay the shipping and then you got to pay for every time you try and inseminate. So what we did was it was called um, intrauterine insemination. So it's IUI for short. And so Tamara went through six of those. And so essentially what that is, is you go in the clinic, it's all very, very timed. So, you know, you're getting your, your blood work done. As soon as your blood work is showing that you're ovulating, then they call you in the following day to inseminate you with the hopes that, you know, your eggs are out at the at a good time. There's a, a, like, I think a three to five day window for your eggs to be there and for the sperm to meet. And you're really hoping for them to love each other enough to make this baby <laughs> um, and make it successfully. So for her, it took six tries, um, took some breaks in between. And then, you know, finally it was, uh, it was mother's day. Um, and it was a day before I remember I ran my first sporting life marathon, um, the 10 K and I was like, you know, and I, I believe in spirituality and, and, and God and whatnot. I remember running and I was just thinking like looking up to the sky and I was like, please let this be the one, let this be the one. And the next day I came home Tamara had gone for her blood work, got the call. And she had this little setup of baby PJs on the, oh, on the table oh to say it worked. And we were just ecstatic. It was like, it was incredible. Um, you know, and her pregnancy was, was relatively smooth. It was, it was easy. Um, I think for her, for me, it's, I really started questioning where I belonged in this because a lot of, because, you know, we used, you know, it was her eggs, donor sperm, and then me as this other parent. And so I was like, well, where do I fit in this process? Like, will this kid even love me? Will they even recognize me as a parent? All these thoughts where I'm like, you know, do, do I even belong in this process? Um, but you know what, even I, I'll have to say, even through the fertility clinics, there were so many times where I was ignored as the partner, I was told to wait while she went in for stuff. And I was like, no, like, I'm her partner, I'm part of this, like, and so, you know, I was allowed to then come in, but I had to advocate for that, which was annoying versus just seen as part of this process. Because when you had, you know, heterosexual couples there, they just, they took them in together. They just, there was no stopping. Like, no, I'm not her sister. I'm not, I'm her partner. Like we are doing this together. Um, and so I think that was contributing to a lot of what I was feeling when she finally did get pregnant. And then, you know, all the changes were happening to her body. This baby was feeling very real for her. And in that process, I had decided I really wanted to experience pregnancy, Um, mostly because I kept asking her, what does it feel like to be pregnant? Like, what does it feel like when this baby is moving and kicking? And she was just like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so hard to describe to someone who has not been pregnant. Yeah, that's what she said, right? She's like, I don't know how to tell. I don't know. And I kept asking and she just couldn't. And I was just fascinated with the science of it. I was like, this is miraculous. The fact that you do this in a clinic, in any setting, you're just combining sperm and eggs, however you do. And then it just, then it becomes this baby that's moving inside of you. And then you give birth to this baby, right? I mean, I I've always called it a parasite because it's totally. (laughs) Oh, it 100% leeches everything out of you really. And these still are parasites, right? (laughs) So like, 
children are innately selfish, right? They like want everything for themselves. So that's, and you know, when you were sharing that, I really feel that they're, we don't treat pregnant people like families. We just treat them like as them, like they're doing the work, right? Which is true, but also they can't do it alone. They are Mm -hmm. supported by their partners. And so not being able to recognize you as, you know, somebody who needs to be in the room, like that would have, that would have felt really, that would have felt really hard. Yeah. And it it felt like shit. It felt what like year shit. was this? Cause this was eight years, nine years ago. It was in 2014. So you can tell that it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Like, no, you know, this is not like 1960s where you're like, okay, like <laughs> this is not, the, and, and this is in Toronto, which is a big city. It is. It is. And, and a very well, you know, known fertility clinic, amazing doctor. Like the doctor was great. It was the other staff that weren't necessarily always, you know, up to, up to par of who I was in, in this journey. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, you forgive so much along the way, but along the way, you know, my self-esteem becomes damaged, right? My, like, where do I fit in becomes, you know, and then of course we're celebrating, we're happy and everyone's so excited, but it's all happening to her. And it's like, and then I would hear things like, you know, oh, well, how did you pick the dad? And, And then it was like, in the beginning, I would just be so angry and I would just, it's not dad, it's donor. I was like, going to say, it's not the dad. The dad's not showing up, right? It's no, just the, yeah. It's just the raw materials, but it took a lot out of me that, that first round in terms of the first round of when we were successfully, when she was successfully pregnant, the constant, like, you know, people would say, dad, dad, dad. And I was like, no, it's donor. But, you know, you know, looking back, I have to also recognize this is completely new to everybody else around us, right? Like they hadn't experienced anything like this and they didn't know the language to use. Um, can I say that they don't use it anymore? Absolutely, right? They, they're they incredible uh, with that. And I mean, our kids are incredible. If anyone ever uses that, they'll say donor. Mind you, my three-year-old is a little shit. Um, I don't know if, if <laughs> swearing Second is child. out, but she constantly will be like, uh, you know, your dad. And I'm like, no, I'm not your dad. <laughs> But she does it on purpose. She, she knows, she knows it bothers you. Oh, yeah. Um, the second so children, yeah, I our, tell you, they just. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was our, our first sort of experience with with our, our first. That was he was born in 2015. Um, do you want me to go into the second or you have questions about that one? How was it when's he your first is a he or what gender pronouns do you okay yeah he's he him yeah um how did you feel once he was born did you still kind of like you weren't part of it or no it was it was you know when they talk like when there's a term love at first sight uh, you know I did feel it with Tamara yes um but when I saw him uh, so she ended up having a c-section and you know what the whole the c-section process I don't think people um, can appreciate what the partner feels like when they watch their part. And if, especially if it's, it wasn't an emergency, but it needed to be done because this baby wasn't coming out any other way. Like I was terrified. I had to keep asking my midwife that she would be okay. Like she's going to be okay. Right. Because and in context where my fear is coming from is that my mom had a, had a C-section with both of us, my brother and myself, but in her second one, she lost so much blood that they had to give her blood transfusions, but then they gave her tainted blood um, because there was the tainted blood scandal back in the eighties in, in 
Toronto um, between and the tainted blood had AIDS or um, uh, hepatitis. And so she ended up getting hepatitis C um, through that. So there was just Gosh. so much fear about, you know, potentially losing her, something that's going to happen. And there's, yeah, so we, you know, go through all that. And then he was born and it was just like, holy, we have a baby. <laughs> and he was just this little angel, like just, just, it was amazing. It was just incredible. I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to hold him all the time. Like he just felt so real. And I think what was amazing is that everyone who came to visit um, the hospital, because my wife has a huge family, they were like, um, but he looks like you. <laughs> You're like, yes, <laughs> exactly. I can't tell you how ecstatic I was. And people were, I, the looks on their faces, they were so confused. <laughs> it was the They're like, what kind of, what did you do here? Honestly, they happen? just couldn't understand how she gave birth and he looked like me. And like, they just, no one could comprehend it. I couldn't see it at the time. Um, and it was just, but it's just, I feel like it's just nature's way, right? Like, it's just the way of doing it. And, and it's, I mean, it's look it, like when people have dogs, their dogs end up looking like them too, it's right? True. So, yeah. <laughs> Everyone just, just ends about, up kind of looking similar. Yeah. Um, I agree. So I think that was, I think that was really remarkable for me to, to hear that he looked like me. And I, you know, I didn't question whether I belong because I knew my responsibility to this kid, you know, I knew it the moment she got pregnant, but I also knew the moment I held him yeah. and I was the first one to hold him post-medical because she, she had had a, a, a the C-section. It was just like the most incredible thing. I'm like, this is mine. This is ours. And he is our responsibility. And yeah, no, I haven't looked back since. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. I think that is something I think my partner can probably resonate with too, though it was his sperm. Yeah. It's, they don't, I, I, this is what I felt as a pregnant person during my first pregnancy. I was like, every second of my life, every second of my day, I'm thinking about this baby. Yeah. But my husband is going to work, not thinking about the baby, like, yeah. because it was happening to my body. I couldn't, I was at work with my clients, but somewhere I was also thinking about the baby absolutely nonstop and you can't not do that. And so it becomes very real for the pregnant person very fast. And I can see how the other person, the, the partner would feel like, okay, where do I play a role in all this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I've never talked about on this podcast. So I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Now I want to hear about your, your own experience with fertility and pregnancy. And when did, cause you mentioned that you were hoping to have your children closer together. Mm -hmm. um, and so you started trying kind of nine months when your son was nine months when he was nine months old, because we yeah. thought, you know, okay, we knew it took six months for him. And here I was so confident. I was 33 at the time. Um, I'm I'm proud and 40 now. Um, but you know, I was I was 33, super excited. And I was like, I got this, you know, I'm young, I'm in good health. And, um, you know, this is going to happen. My eggs are great. They're amazing. <laughs> you know, there's no question about them. And we're, we got this. Lo and behold, I learned my eggs likely really, really detest sperm because <laughs> every attempt <laughs> just did not work. So what's really nice that in Canada, and now I don't know if this still exists, but I, I think it does, is that back in 
um, I can't even tell you what year, but it wasn't that long ago. In the last 10 years, in the last decade, the government, um, through the advocacy of many, many people, um, you know, who work in the fertility process and um, have dealt with infertility, advocated for funding. And so what the government agreed upon was your first IVF cycle. Um, so that's in vitro fertilization or ICSI, which is similar. I can talk through that in a bit. It would be funded. And so what you're looking at is all the fees, all the practitioner fees would be funded. So that's about ten to $12,000 that you don't have to think about out of pocket. The, what you do have to think about out of pocket are the, the medication costs. Okay. So that's, so we got, so I went through three IUI cycles. So just, you know, put, let's put the sperm in. So lots of blood work, 7am, let's find out when you're ovulating. And I was so annoyed because I would always feel like they're not getting it on time or that they should do this. They should do that. Like I'm the doctor, right? Like uh -huh. it's, it's similar during the pandemic. Everyone became an immunologist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, you know, I thought I knew more. I didn't, they were doing the best they could, but there's so much emotion. There's so much emotion. And then I did an IVF cycle um, early on. So it was my fourth try because we're like, okay, we're, we're eligible for the funding. Let's go and do Let's it. Let's use it. Yeah. Yeah. And so this was just after he turned one, I was eligible for the funding uh, cycle. And so we went through it and I ended up with nothing. There were nine eggs extracted, um, two, and then, you know, they were all inseminated. And two of them were kind of still going at it at day four when I went in and they don't tell you all this. So when you, they tell you at day three, what the, so basically they're expecting it to turn to a blastocyst that they can then put into your, that they can transfer into your uterus. So they only tell you up to day three. So when you go in in day five, you have no idea if there's anything left. They just, they don't tell you or at least this clinic didn't. And so we went in day five and, uh, you know, for the transfer and I'm so excited. And they were like, yeah, one of them didn't really make it. And the one that we're going to try looks like it might, might not make it. So we're just going to go for it. So, you know, I go in with that. We try it. Unfortunately that, that cycle didn't work. And then I decided I needed to switch clinics because during that clinic process, there were so many things that were happening. Like I was asked for my, my, partner to come and bring his sperm. And like, I just wasn't seen as who I was. Like I was just seen as a, a number and part of the heterosexist system yeah. and it was exhausting. And, um, you know, mind you, it wasn't a long lengthy process yet. I was only four tries in essentially, but I thought that's for still, sure, I feel like that's still a long time in the sense of like Anyone who's tried for a pregnancy of any kind and knows yeah. each month how disappointing it is Absolutely. when you don't right don't have and a baby. Yeah. I think what people don't understand in that is it's not tangible loss for like that you can describe because like I can't there's there's nothing I've lost, but there is something I've lost because I've lost that hope. hope. Right. Because yeah. each month that you're ovulating, there's that and you're trying, there's that hope. And that hope to create this child, to create the family, you've already created it all in your mind. And then it's sorry, no, it didn't work this month. And, um, you know, so it, I, I was, I think the IVF was what really, really set me back because I thought, of course, an IVF would work because I'm not coming in to the fertility process with any known issues. Right. Right. Because typically you're healthy. Okay. Everything else is. Yeah, exactly. Like we're only here because we have to be here because we don't have an alternative way to create a 
children. So we're here not because of the medical route, but because of like necessary, you know, we needed it. And so in, in my mind, I was like, well, there's, um, medically, it seems like everything is fine. So this should work. And, and I was led to believe it should work because on paper, everything looked great. So it was a really big blow, a big blow to my self-esteem, a big blow to, I just felt like I was a failure. And that feeling lasted for many years um, because every month we switched clinics. And again, and I think in total, I tried 11, no, I'm, I think 13 IUIs. Wow. Um, and wow. Yeah. And then we then said, and we, we switched donors. Um, as well, because we thought let's so let's go find someone who looks like my wife. We found someone. He was super cute, um, not as tall as we would have wanted. <laughs> like, and it's funny, right? Because we had no idea. We're like, okay, what does five ten actually look like? So we went around to all of the men in our lives. We're like, how tall are you? How tall are you? And uh, you know, we'd be like, one one guy was like five ten. We're like, okay, all right, that's acceptable. <laughs> Right. Cause like you're, we just, we, I mean, that's, I guess that's a nice thing in that we do get to shop around much more than for if you're with one single life partner yeah. that you want to make children with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we tried with a different donor and then at the same time, we both came back to each other and said, let's go back to the original donor. Um, you know, we know it's worked. So let's go back. We tried unsuccessfully many, many times. And then, um, we applied for my wife to get IVF funding because she had never gone through IVF. And we just said, okay, you know what? Let's just switch back to you. It's too exhausting. And I think the hardest part, and I think anyone who's dealt with fertility who has a partner is that the partners just don't get it as intimately as what you're going through. Like they just don't, they don't understand because like I said earlier, the loss is not tangible, but I'm not saying that the loss is not real for them either. And I think I didn't appreciate that each time because I knew she for her, she saw the hurt, right? She saw the pain. And it's also, she's going through the same too, in a different way. But I was just so self-absorbed in why it's not happening to me and my body's a failure that um, I didn't even acknowledge that, you know, she's probably processing loss at the same time. Um, But she was wonderful in that, of course, she's the best and doesn't never centers herself. And so she didn't, right? It was all about me and, and me going through this. And but then at the end, we're like, okay, you know what? It's worked with you. So just you go through it because there's just no point anymore. And I, I'm, I'm done. I, I have to give up. Um, in that process, I gave up sugar for two years. Like I did everything possible to think this is how my body would get better to have babies. And it's, it's not that. So anyone who's trying to restrict food because you think it's going to help you have a baby, I can tell you, it, it, may not. <laughs> it may not. So eat that burger, eat that cake, eat whatever you want, because yeah. honestly, you need to give yourself comfort and compassion going through this. And, and that's one thing I didn't do. I was not compassionate with myself going through the process. Um, I, I obviously don't, I don't have that experience that you have. Um, and I, but I work with a lot of people who've had difficulty with fertility and I really don't think that anyone who hasn't had that experience will understand. But what I see is that we all need to be more compassionate with people who 
may or may not be going through this because when you ask a family, oh, when are you having a child or when are you having your next one? You have no idea what they're going through. Absolutely. And it's, first of all, it's none of our business, but also sometimes it's from people who are our family members who truly care about us. So they're not saying it with, um, you know, in a, to be mean, they just truly care, but also doesn't mean you're ready to share what you're going through with everyone around you either, yeah, because it's such absolutely. a deeply personal issue. Yeah. Um, but it's also back to like these assumptions that, you know, these, you got to get married, you got to yes. buy a house, you got to have kids, you got to then put the kids in university. No, you got to breastfeed or chest feed. You got to, And then if you do that past a year, oh my God, something's wrong with you. Like there's just all these expectations of when things should happen. And people have to recognize that like, not everybody wants kids. And you know what? That's okay. And that's even better. The people who recognize that they don't want kids, I appreciate them so deeply because they would end up being awful parents yeah, because they I agree. want to be parents, yeah. right? And I think our parents' generations and those you know, before them didn't have those types of choices. No. They were just held to those expectations. And so it's the same thing, right? That generation of parents are expecting their children to have children and and it's this whole like as soon as you get okay when when are the babies coming and it's like but you, you have no idea what we're going through and sometimes you know I have I have family members who who have been trying for years and you know it's it's like it's something that is so it, you're so vulnerable and as a person going through it you just feel like a failure and now it's just being highlighted by your family members because you still don't have these the said children that you're, you know, that the, you know, expecting grandparents are waiting for. And so it's such an awful process. So I, you know, for, for me, my recommendation is really just to get to know people, have conversations with them and let them share the information if they want to, when but if they ready. don't, yeah. yeah, when they're ready, if, if they don't want to, don't ask them when they're having kids, like, you know, if they want to have kids, they'll ask you about things or they'll share information. But otherwise, it's not it's frankly, no one's business. No, no. Yeah. And my brother's 42 and he doesn't have kids and he's like not partnered. And when I was probably 10 years younger, we would harass him. When, when are you going to get me? And yeah. now I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy's so wise. Like he's truly so wise because he knows he would not he doesn't want kids. He wouldn't make, he wouldn't make a good parent. And he knows that. And I like, like you, I truly respect people who maybe they would make great parents, but they don't want kids. And I respect that decision so much. Our parents didn't have that choice. Like you said, Mm -hmm. they were forced into that very limited, narrow view of what is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And frankly speaking, I often think my dad should never have had kids knowing (laughs) who he is. Right. Like, I'm glad I'm here, but like at the same time, I can recognize that so many people of that generation would have been better off not having kids because it was deeply traumatizing to them. Well, and even I think for my mom, um, her deep sadness. And when I came out to her, you know, back when I was a teenager, her, her greatest sadness was her fear that I would not have kids. Um, That was, yeah, that was her, you know, that I wouldn't live a quote unquote normal life because I wouldn't have kids. And, um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was one of her greatest concerns, right? Like that it wasn't going to happen for me. And it was like, well, you know, it, it happened. It just happened in a different way. And, you know, she's, she's great with them now, but I think, you know, for her, it was a very long process of how do I process this information? I'm not, you know, she has three grandkids from my brother, but she didn't, she didn't think she would ever get them from me. And I'm glad she did 
<laughs> I'm glad you did too. So when, uh, when you finally did get pregnant, mm-hmm. how did you feel? Was it the exciting yeah. pregnancy, you know, excited feelings that you had? That yeah. You had so well, I'll go back to, you know, so we had decided with Tamara doing it, right? That's right. Yeah. So we decided, uh, you know, she would go through the process. And so she went through the egg retrieval process and we were told her numbers are great on paper. It's going to be amazing. She's going to have tons of eggs. We're going to have tons of choice. Guess what? We didn't have a ton of choice. We ended up with one single embryo, just one. Um, Yeah. Just the egg extract. She didn't develop a, she didn't produce a lot of eggs. Um, that they had hoped and um, of the eggs that, yeah, we just had one embryo. And uh, we, I remember so clearly sitting in the doctor's office and he, he, he's so wonderful. But at that time, obviously I thought he wasn't because you're vulnerable. Right. And this process is very, it's a privatized, you know, private medical care system. So you think they just care about the dollars. And I remember um, him sitting there and saying to us, telling us that there's one embryo, it looks very good you know, based on all the analysis that I've done, it's a good embryo, but there is only one. And so, you know, I immediately in my mind thought, okay, this is well, Tamara is going to do it because she has a successful pregnancy. We, we know it's worked in her body. So we'll go with that. And he looked at us and he said, because he knew how long I'd been trying. And he said, this embryo can go in either of your bodies. The success rates may not differ at all. Um, and so, cause they had done like my uterine testing and, and whatnot. So they, they, you know, they, they knew. said, and she sat there and she was incredible. And she said, you do this. And, um, but I don't want you to do this. And if it doesn't work for you to carry that with you. Mm. And, um, sorry, I'm going to get emotional here. I know I'm tearing up too. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Cause it was selfless of her in recognizing how much I wanted this. Um, and I, I was like, okay, all right. Yes. Okay. If it's a loss, it's not my fault. If it's a loss and let's do this. And, um, but what we did was we took this little one embryo and we froze it for seven months. Cause we were like, we're going to go on vacation. We're going to figure stuff out. And so we went to Italy, had the best vacation for three weeks, took our son. He was three and a half at the time. And then, um, you know, and I wanted some time. I didn't feel ready yet. To, yeah, didn't want to be rushed into this when you were yeah. super. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we came back, it was in January of uh, 2019 and we're like, all right, let's do it. We played some music in the, in, I, I actually, I had a, a dream the night before of one of the doctors and not even the doctor that I was working with doing the, the transfer of the embryo. And then she ended up being the one who transferred the embryo, which was no way. really weird. Yeah. Um, but we played music and we laughed a lot. Like I remember we just, we were so relaxed that day. And, um, and then we, we just, we, we just hoped and prayed that it would work. And then, um, so you wait, I think the wait period is six days because six to eight days, I can't remember, but it's shorter than your regular wait of uh, two weeks because this, this blastocyst is already five to six days More old. developed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember I had to, the blood work should have been on the weekend, but because the blood labs are closed, 
I would have to go in on the Monday for the blood work to find out if I was pregnant. But of course I started taking home pregnancy tests because who doesn't, right? Yeah. yeah. And I had, I've, I took pregnancy tests throughout the years. I always took them. Yeah. And so, you know, they'd always be negative. And then this time there was a faint, 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 faint positive line. And I remember being like, holy shit, it's happened. And I knew, I honestly, I'm like, I knew, I knew it had happened because there was just this feeling that was so different from all the other times. And I was just like, I, I think this is real. And I looked into, I remember sending a picture to Tamara and she's like, this is great, babe, but like, let's just wait. Let's till wait. Blood, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I remember sending it to my friends and I was like, it, it like, do you, do you see what I see? And they're yeah. like, oh my God, oh my God. Everyone, we're all, we're all super ecstatic. And I sent it to one of my dearest, closest friends. He, he passed away in 2019. Um, but he was a, a big part of this process too, in, in terms of at work, someone who like he, he was amazing, very, very just supportive. And, um, he was, he was also the real talk in my head. He was like, this is amazing, but you, you just be realistic if this is blah, blah, blah. Right. Like just everything of like, just let's wait for the blood work until we can really celebrate. Yeah. And then blood work comes. It, it's, you know, she says it's positive. I'm like, yeah, I took some tests. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I already knew. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then the beauty of being through the fertility clinic is you get to go for ultrasounds at seven weeks and then you get to go. Um, and then they sort of move you then into the regular system. So I okay. got to see how this, this fetus was progressing and, and hear the heartbeat. Like when we went for that heartbeat, it was the most incredible incredible feeling in in the whole world it was like oh my god my body is growing another human being like holy crap and and then okay what are the odds that this is going to go wrong because there are more odds of it not developing to term than it like it's wild when you actually read about the development of of fetuses it's like how does this happen like i know it's it's a a true miracle that anyone is here like I, i that's how i feel after going through like just pregnancies and learning mm-hmm. more about it. Um, and I, I do one thing I wanted to say is that you were going through all of this stuff while also being a parent to a young yes. child, yes. which is incredibly hard. Being a parent yes. to a young child is hard in itself. And if you are going through a lot of, I feel like it's, it probably affected every aspect of your ha- your life and your health. Everything, everything. I was unhappy. I was very depressed. I was seeing an amazing therapist who, who um, actually dealt with a lot of people dealing with infertility. She was incredible. Um, my, my boss at the time, Matt, who passed away, um, he was so supportive too. He said, I needed to take a leave of absence. Um, and I was so distant from my kid, from my wife, like I was so broken, I was so broken, right. And it was just, I didn't feel like I knew who I was anymore. Um, and what, what, how I like, what do I do? How do I go on? This is something I really want. And why isn't it happening to me? And it just, but you know what, I had an incredible support network, I, I met some wonderful um, friends through this. Um, and you know, they were incredible through the whole process. Um, so yeah, you know, I found people to lean on, which really got me through it. And now, and actually Rena, who's been on your podcast was one yes. of those humans. And I, I, I mean, Rena is incredible. So I figured her people yeah. are also incredible. <laughs> um, uh, but that, 
I think anyone who has been through any period of depression knows that what you feel during that during that time is is very dark and it mm-hmm. can be very lonely, but it's not it's not the real you in the sense yeah. that that's not who you are. You're not defined by you know, what you're going through at any given period of, of your life. Right. Yeah. And I think that people who are, who love you, obviously recognize you for you, even when maybe you, you couldn't recognize yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, what's truly special about relationships and connection and community is we need it. It's essential for every single person to be, yeah. to be here and to be thriving. And yeah. I feel like we lost so much of that during the pandemic, but you had your daughter, I believe, yeah, right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic. Right before. Okay. Yeah. And I had all oh. these hopes and dreams of what we were going to do during my my parental leave, but that didn't pan out in the same way. Yeah. And, you know, pregnancy was amazing. I know you asked me how I felt and I yeah. was ecstatic, ecstatic through all of it, um, except when I realized my body was changing and my my chest was growing. Um now I I haven't I've generally been on the smaller side uh, you know I gained weight so you know my chest got Everything bigger grew. yeah yeah and then but it started growing during pregnancy and the one thing was I had made it clear because I have as a you know as a person who identifies as non-binary I I really hate my chest I don't connect with it I have I you know even from an intimate perspective I don't I don't want anyone touching my chest it's just not an area that I've ever connected with intimately. Um, or even outwardly. Um, and so I made it clear to the midwife right from the, the beginning yeah. that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be, you know, chest or breastfeeding. And um, she was amazing, incredibly supportive. Great. Yep. Okay. I got you. Don't worry. I will, I will take care of it. Um, which was great, but you know, I needed to then find clothing that I felt comfortable in. And I've always felt really comfortable in expressing my gender through my clothing. Um, and you know, I say this in my keynote, but my mom was extremely supportive in that regard as conservative. She's a conservative Muslim human being. Um, but she was the most supportive parent in allowing me to express myself the way that felt right for me. And, um, I hope I can do that for my kids, but she, she was incredible. She, but she, uh, she, you know, blames herself for, for making me gay because she let me wear my brother's tuxedo when I was sick. <laughs> He's convinced that that's, that's the moment that it happened. That's the I, moment it happened. You know what? Maybe as a parent, she might've seen the joy I felt. Yeah. So maybe in her mind, you know, as I sort of break this down, maybe in her head, she actually did see it. Um, and she saw the joy that I felt putting on my brother's suit, but, and so that's why she thinks that's what made me gay is allowing me to express myself. Um, but, but in it, reality, it was just you for probably for the first time feeling like safe, this is me and me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And, uh, and having a parent, um, who allowed me to do that. And the thing is like, I grew up in a community where we did, um, uh, performances like dances um every like December and July or whatever and so my cousin was the girl dancer and I always took on the boy role right because we we were acting out Bollywood so we would do all the Bollywood <laughs> I love it and I was always the boy and even in um so I'm a smiley so even in the in the Kani which is a mosque you know we would perform these things on stage and everyone knew I just played the boy role and it was amazing and I think that was so instrumental in 
who I became as a, as an adult and in, in, in how confident I became in my identity. But in pregnancy, for the first time, I found myself so conflicted because here's all this clothing that doesn't feel right for my repertoire of clothing, right? It's all frilly and frumpy and, and I think Lowry any and, person yeah. who goes through this, right? Like you look at your options and you're like, these are not great options. You're like, and none then, of these are me. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Because as you probably know, when you're going through it, your body is not even yours. Right. No, it's like not. it's just, it, it's a, there's a, it's a host to this parasite essentially. That is the best way of putting it. Literally <laughs> that you are hosting this parasite that is growing in you that you want, but also you have zero control over your body at that time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so going through the process, I was feeling very disassociated with my gender identity. I didn't know how to express myself anymore because clothing was my way to express my gender. And now I didn't have that option because pregnancy was extremely limiting in my option options for clothing. And so I found myself and even t-shirts, right? They were all V-neck t-shirts. And here I am typically, actually, this is always buttoned up to my neck. So I always have my dress shirts buttoned up to my neck. Um, I wear crew neck t-shirts. Like I, I never wear V-neck t-shirts and now that's all I was wearing V-neck t-shirts with like cleavage showing and, you know, everything was tight, which was fine. I, I don't mind wearing like skinnies, but apparently they're not in style anymore. <laughs> I'm keeping all my skinnies, but you know, I was wearing skinnies and these t-shirts and I just felt so, I just didn't feel good. I didn't feel good with my body growing and I felt conflicted and, you know, Tamara helped me find clothing that fit. I had to import some from the UK because here we didn't have many options. Um, just even t-shirts. I couldn't even find just general pregnancy t-shirts with like that were crew neck. Um, and so, you know, I ended up finding some, I made it through and then um, I ended up having a C-section as well. And uh, the, that whole experience of birthing was unreal. <laughs> there were so many things that I was like, holy shit, this is what people have to go through. Like it is unreal. But it, what's incredible is that both of us have been able to experience that in a relationship. I, and I, I, I know so many men in my life who have, who have said to me, like, that's really incredible that you also got to experience it because you, you typically you two both. people don't yeah. right get to experience that. So I am very fortunate that I did get to experience it, even with seven epidurals and lots of hands up my vagina. It was, uh, you know, <laughs> it was a great experience. I and I I feel like you have so much more gratitude for that experience because of your history going into that experience versus somebody who maybe got pregnant like that ended up with a C section who may have found that experience more traumatizing because. You know, and it's all that's I think that's why it's all, you know, perspective matters. Um, and with if both partners in a relationship experience that, I'm just thinking the deeper level of understanding and compassion and empathy and gratitude that you probably have when you're like, I've been through this as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I know how hard it is. Because part of it is I felt it was so unfair after I had my baby, that it was my body going through all of these changes and my body that needs to recover. Like I'm a physio. So I know I support people through this because of that, because I know 
in many ways it is unfair. Yeah. But I also know that the partner doesn't want to always just be a useless, you know, sitting in the background. They also want to help. And yeah. I feel, I, I, yeah, I, I, this is incredible. I'm so happy that this is how it happened, even though yeah. I know it, you had so many years of hardship going through it all. But I can, you know, one thing I, I didn't point out was while it's amazing, there was also, we went through the midwifery experience and we ended up having the same midwife that we had um, when Tamara was pregnant, no which way. was amazing. She's incredible. But there was also an assumption that because my wife went through it, we knew what to expect. Um, and, um, and you're like, nope, this is all new for me. Yeah. That's the thing. Right. And that. And your body's different. It, that that's what it was. And, and, and it made me quite upset through the process because there were questions I would have because there were changes that were happening to my body, not because we'd already gone through pregnancy or Tamara had gone through pregnancy and we know what to expect, but that, you know, it, I'm still a different human being. Like I, I still have different like thoughts and, you know, have questions. And so there was that underlying assumption because we'd gone through it. It was like, she was seeing the same person again, but mm. it wasn't the same person. It was an entirely different human being. So that's something that I think, you know, while yes, amazing that we both got to experience it, we were both also seen as one through the experience, which, you know, it wasn't the same. Like, yes, we both ended up having a C-section, but my post experience was extremely, extremely different uh, than hers. And what was your, you had mentioned that you'd had um, postpartum preeclampsia. Yes. Can you yeah. tell me what that is? And yeah. And I, that, you know, I, I want the world to know about this and, and just look for these symptoms. So, um, I was three, four days out, um, from, from giving birth, we had come home very, fairly quickly. We didn't want to stay in the hospital. Um, everything checked out fine. And so about three days in, I started swelling up a lot. My feet were swelling up. My hands were swelling up and typically swelling is supposed to go down. And that's what they tell you to, right? When you leave the hospital, your swelling is supposed to come down. My, the secondary midwife had come to check on me and, you know, they checked my blood pressure, they checked things. And I was starting to have trouble breathing, especially when I was lying down, I was having trouble breathing. And so my midwife, bless them, um, thought it was anxiety. And so gave me these tips and tools on how to breathe. And I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it is anxiety. I'll chalk it up to that. Thursday night comes, I'm having lots of trouble breathing. And when I'm on my back, like, you know, ignoring it, I'm also still I'm feeling like my feet, I can feel the liquid in my feet as I'm walking, like they're feeling really heavy, you know, and um, that was the Thursday. And I had said that and they said, you know, just keep doing the breathing exercises, you're probably fine. So Thursday night, I go to bed, and I wake up like I can't breathe. I can't breathe at all in the laying position. Like I just can't catch breath. And so then I said to Tamara, I said, no, something is really wrong here. Like something this is, is not wrong. normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew it. I knew I was. Like, and, and that's what I actually said. Those are the words. I said, this is not normal. Something is wrong. So she's like, all right, let's call. Let's call the ambulance. Because it was 3 a.m. We have a brand new baby right next to us in the bassinet. And, and then our son, who's, you know, four and a half sleeping in the other room. And um, so she can't leave. She can't take me to the hospital. So we're like, okay, let's call, let's call the ambulance. Ambulance is there. It's like three 30 in the morning. They arrive and um, you know, do all the, the, the work. They like, everything looks fine. 
one of the paramedics, one of the, uh, maybe it was the fire. Yeah. Um, the fire, not, what are they called? Firefighters, firefighters. Yeah. Like fire chief. Yeah. Firefighters. Yeah. Firefighters. Um, you know, um, she was telling me about her birth experience and yeah, it can be hard and everyone's kind of dismissing that I'm actually legitimately feeling something wrong with my body. And so they're, and they're like, well, because we're here and it's protocol, we have to take you to the hospital. I was like, okay. You know, so I'm in this ambulance by myself. I'm getting very emotional. And then I'm like, maybe it is anxiety. Is it anxiety? Because every time I'd lie down, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe at all. And I feel like that's a clear sign that that's not anxiety. Because it's like mostly when you're lying down. Yeah. He's like, yeah, no, it could be anxiety. And the thing is they checked, you know, my, my pulse and my heart rate and everything seemed to be fine. I go to the hospital. I explain, you know, they finally take me to triage. The, the 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 paramedics just casually explain, yeah, she's having some trouble breathing and just recently had a baby. And here I am in the stretcher. I just had a C-section seven days ago. And I'm like yelling that I just like I had major surgery seven days ago and something doesn't feel right. You know, they're like, OK, OK. Eventually I get moved in to a room and I go and ask not a room, sorry, in the waiting area for patients that have been triaged now, but it's inside and they go, okay, go and sit down over there. And then I'm, so I go back to the counter and I ask how many people are ahead of me? And they said 17. What? Yeah. And this was three 30 in the morning in September of 2019. So this was before the pandemic. Wow. There were, there were that 17 people in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night to be treated at the hospital. And I, I, I was, I, I lost my shit. I was like, I just had a C-section and you're asking me to sit in a chair. Is there a room of it? No, sorry. First I asked, is there a room available? They're like, no, no, sorry. We have no rooms. Then I got really upset. I got very emotional. And I said, I just had a C-section. Like I cannot sit on a chair. All of a sudden, miraculously, right in front of the nurse's station, they open and it's an empty bed. And I was like, oh, okay. So they let me go in that. And I had during that time in the hospital, one of the nurses said, oh, you must have the baby blues. And I was like, no, I don't have the baby blues. Something is wrong with me. And then actually a nurse, um, a South Asian nurse actually heard me. So came over to me and I, and she's like, are you okay? And I said, can I have some water? She asked me what's going on. She's like, okay, let me see if I can get you seen faster. She gets me moved to the another area where I was seen and uh, they went and, you know, got my x-rays done, not x-rays, but a CT scan yeah. of my lungs and, and my heart to see what was going on. I had five liters of fluid built up on my lungs and I had heart failure. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Five liters and heart failure. Mm-hmm. And is this a complication of a C-section? Or is no, this it's just complication of pregnancy that and pregnancy okay. and my blood pressure had skyrocketed. Um, and so they didn't know what was going on because this is so rare. They had no idea. Right. The doctor came and he was like, yeah, you have you have liters and liters of fluid on your lungs. And um, so, you know, gave me diuretics and I just kept peeing out. It was great weight loss. <laughs> You're like I'm instantaneously 15 five pounds. pounds yeah. It was five pounds lighter. I went in and came out. Um, 
but they admitted me into the cardiac ICU, um, essentially for, for three, three days. I was there for two nights, three days, you know, getting shots to make sure I don't get, I don't have a clot and I don't die constant heart monitoring. Um, and yeah, they came in and said, yeah, I had mild congestive heart failure and here I am 37 just gave birth. And you're sitting here telling me I have mild congestive heart failure. I've never had heart issues in my life. And then on top of that, I was told I could never carry again because it's too high of a risk. And this sort of stuff, like the thing is, like I had to keep telling people something was wrong. No one listened to me. Like my midwife, who my midwives who were incredible and they apologized after the fact. I think it was a really good learning experience for them because they realized okay, when we know a patient is talking about not being able to breathe, like these signs and symptoms, like, you know, if you're experiencing swelling, that's going up, if your blood pressure is up, and this can happen up to six weeks postpartum, um, blood pressure, swelling, um, and breathing, those are three, three things you can, you got to pay attention to, because it could end up, you can end up having a stroke and dying. Um, and, and it, and it's cause your body goes through so much, right? We all know the impact of pregnancy and childbirth on a body, but it's the recovery isn't easy on the body either, right? So much can go wrong and this is rare. Um, but there are signs and symptoms. And the thing is the healthcare practitioners are not, they don't, they don't know, um, don't know. Yeah. as a person who's had a baby, they're extremely dismissive. They think you're hormonal. They think that maybe you don't want to be with your baby. I don't know what they think, but they didn't take me seriously at all. It was so much advocating at 3.30 in the morning. While when you're a week postpartum, post-section, yeah, exactly. when you're already like, I'm exhausted, I'm barely sleeping and I just want to sleep. Like, why would you? That's what I want to know. Like, what is in their mind to think that somebody wants to be at the hospital, first of all, yeah. when they're a week postpartum and they would rather be sleeping in their own bed. Like Absolutely. even if their baby's crying, it's their own space versus yeah. like, and I, I, I do see a lot of, um, postpartum folks, pregnant folks being dismissed yeah. for their concerns. And I really do think that we know our bodies best. Like you joked earlier, like you're not the doctor, but I'll, at the same time, I really do think that we have an innate ability to know our bodies best. Just yeah. like babies, they know they're hungry. They will cry. They don't yes. need to be told that they're hungry. They just know. <laughs> We yeah. know when something's not right. And I do think that we need to listen. So um, high blood pressure, increasing swelling, difficulty breathing. Um, did you, when you went into, so it took a CT, that was the diagnosis. That, yeah. That that, then they saw the the liters of the blood, fluid. Of the fluid. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was terrifying. It was so terrifying. And I remember calling my circle of friends and, you know, they showed up right away because they all live near the hospital. Um, and they were there from the morning all throughout, came back for dinner. My mom stayed. Um, so it was incredible. I had this incredible support system. My wife had her family at home with the baby, but like I couldn't see the baby. And I had just like given birth to this kid, right? And it's just like I couldn't see her. It was um it was hard. I think what was hardest was also like thinking I was going to die and no one, no one would believe me. That was the hardest was they didn't, no one believed me. No one who is 
who who has gone through the medical profession is believing me as a patient. They just, and it's absurd because you add on intersectional identities and it just gets worse, right? I always think, I'm like, if you are a white woman, how would that have changed? Oh, if you absolutely. were, you know, if absolutely. you were um, hetero, like if the way you presented was different, like there's so many layers to that. Yeah. And yeah. we know that this is, this happens in the States. There's research too. They, yes. They research this in Canada. I don't know if there's race-based data and database, like, not as much I, like, we know how many black women die in childbirth and postpartum because their needs are not taken care of they're not heard and it happens and i i saw it too in the hospital i remember being there and this guy had come in you know he had come in um drunk and like the number of people who would attend to his needs constantly versus mine and i was like what i don't understand like I just had major surgery. I cannot breathe. I, and I'm told I have the baby blues and then left to just go sit in a chair. Whereas this guy's given a room with a bed and like told to just recover and go home. And it's like, you're like, he literally just got drunk. He just needs an IV. He can sit. He'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. But like you see it day in and day out, like the, the system is so broken. Right. And, and, I mean, textbooks, just think about textbooks, right? They're, they don't even have racial, like different no. color skin tones. No, everything is white. And I think that, and the other thing is even as like, I'm a, a brown woman, I'm a South Asian yeah. woman. And I also studied from a white lens, even though I'm not white, I have life experience that isn't white, but the way I studied in school was very, what, what's a normal posture? It's not a yeah. It's not a brown woman's posture. It is a white male posture that we're studying as normal. And that's so unrealistic. It's very easy when you work in healthcare to be very um, mistrusting of healthcare professionals because you see exactly who works there and their biases. And I've worked in the hospital system before too. And uh, unfortunately, it happens more often than not. And I know we all like to have like blind trust in our healthcare professionals, but here's why self-advocating is so crucial. And I'm so glad that you had it in you to advocate for yourself because some people are so scared to speak up, scared to say anything, and they don't want to be a bother. And that's what it is. That may have killed you, right? Yeah. No. And that's exactly what it is. The don't want to be a bother. I think that is so common in how women are told to behave, right? Like don't bother people. And like you said, it could mean your life. Like, but, but, and the thing is, like, especially if you've gone through childbirth, if you're feeling that anything is feeling off, just go get it checked. And if it's not, if everything's fine, great. But you didn't bother anyone by getting it checked. What you did was ensuring that you will continue to live to then take care of this child that you just delivered um, and gave birth to. And it's just like, you have to listen to your body and you have to advocate in the healthcare system because no one else is going to do it for you. In fact, they're going to tell you you're wrong and they're going to tell you, no, you're fine. And you just have to keep going. You have to listen to yourself and, and fight those systems because those systems weren't designed for, for people like you and me. And it's a very patriarchal system that I know better. I'm right. You're, you're less than me. So I'm going to tell you what to do about your own body. And it's like, no, like, this is still my body. I own myself. You are just helping me. That's your job. And 
in my line of work, I really try to remove that because even women carry the patriarchy onto our patients. We have this hierarchy and I'm like, no, nobody's better or worse. And I'm like, my clients, they know their bodies the best. So if they're telling me something's wrong, I'm listening. Yeah. And I really encourage anyone who's listening to this, especially if you are in the healthcare system or if you are a pregnant person or postpartum, please advocate for yourself. Even if your doctor hates you, I don't want to be liked. I want to be alive and well, right? That's it, right? Yeah. yeah. You got to advocate for your life because literally the system is not designed for you. Um, especially until it is, until yeah. it is, we'll be having to continue this, you know, advocacy and speaking up and, I think that's something that I, I got from your talk for um, Steps of Pride as well is like, there's so many layers of you not being seen for who you are ultimately, yeah. that is very damaging to a person. And Absolutely. as an immigrant, I feel that, you know, yeah. is people are seeing me as this, you know, kid with an accent who smells like curry, right? <laughs> Versus like, okay, that might be true, but also <laughs> I'm this, this, and this. Yeah. And um it's very damaging when you when you get it a lot. And somebody who's never had it would be like, oh, so what? Just just correct them. And you're like, no, it's not just that it's, simple. It's no, not that easy. It, it's not, right? It's just not. And like, it, yeah, no, I think I think you got that all. I want to know about you as a parent. How do yeah. you, um, not how do you raise your kids, but how do you ensure that your kids are best equipped with inclusive language, inclusive. Um, I think just being raised by you would be, you know, would be easy enough, but even yeah. still for somebody like I, I'm in a heterosexual relationship yeah. and we talk to our kids about um, all different ways of being families. But what I notice is that their daycare doesn't. So mm -hmm. while they might mention it once or twice, there's still a mommy daddy or like a two parents. And I'm like, some people don't have parents. They yeah. are raised by grandparents or, or other, other members of the family. And I, I know it's going to happen when they, there's one kid that then enters and I'm like, it, we shouldn't have to wait till we meet that kid. We should just, it should be the default. That's it. You know, that's it. Yeah. And so what I'm really conscious about with, with my kids is at first I'm completely honest and transparent with them. I don't hide anything. And also I think what's really important and what people don't recognize is kids can understand a lot. If you say it to them in kid appropriate terms, they're so good and they're sponges, right? They're going to absorb this information and they're going to spread this information and they're going to be like, they're just wonderful when you actually empower them with information. Um, so this morning is a great example because one of them was saying something about ladies. I don't know. They kept using the term ladies. And I was like, you know, I don't really like that term. I actually really hate, like in terms of reference to me, I, I, cannot stand the term lady. Um, I actually am, I'm much more closer to changing my pronouns altogether. Like right now I'm she, they, but I think I might move to they, I'm becoming more comfortable with that. Um, but you know, I, and I said to my son who's older, I said, well, why don't I like the term lady? He's like, because you're non-binary. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, you don't really feel like a boy and you don't feel like a girl. I was like, exactly. And, um, you know, and then my daughter, she's like, ask me, ask me. And I was like, well, how do you feel? She's like, I don't feel like a boy. I don't feel like a girl. I'm just Gabrielle. <laughs> and she's three, right? And I'm like, yeah, you do you. Like, you be confident in who you are. And I think what I 
what's really important for me and I think for other parents is instill the confidence in your children to express themselves as who they are, support them as who they are, but also teach them to support their peers um, and then advocate in all the systems possible. So like you said, at your daycare, right? Like our daycare celebrates pride, celebrates National Indigenous History Month, celebrates Black History Month, um, recognizes diversity. I think it's super important, but Here's a really good example of how you can change things so easily. If you are a new parent that's applying to a daycare, for example, going on a wait list, there's always a form. The form usually says the mother's name. So it says mother, and then it says father, right? Now, inclusive daycares and you know um, childcare provider uh, places will have parent one, parent two, or you know guardian one, guardian two. Um. And I think when you see a form that says mother and father, I think it's really important for you to fill that out and potentially cross out the word father, cross out the word mother, and just write parent one and parent two. And I know a lot of people get their arms up as like, oh, I'm I'm being I'm not being seen as a mother anymore. There's a whole and there's the whole turf piece and like there's so much, you know, that people feel like are being taken away. But it's not a sum zero game. Like it's not a like it's, it's not, nothing's being taken away. What you've done now is made it easier for a family like mine to enter this space yeah. because what you've done is made it safe. So when I go to apply for my child for daycare and I get this form and it says parent one and parent two, I'm like, oh my God, look, we're being seen. Our family structure is being Our seen. Our family will feel safe here. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, there was a, a Montessori close by to us, you know, I was, when I, we were looking at different places, I did the same thing. I sent the form in and I, I did that. And I said, have you not had, um, you know, families of different structures? And she was honest. She's like, you know what? No, we haven't. And you're the first one to correct me on this. And I appreciate it. And it's also the responsibility of the childcare providers in the same breath to be like, thanks for this. And then just change it going forward. And that's it. And because if they don't, if how they respond, it also is very telling on what their status is in terms of their level of um, embracing people who are yeah. not like them, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, I had a recent, I, I had signed up for this pelvic health class uh, course and the the form, they're like archaic. It's all in like, you got to fill it out, PDF. I'm like, there's no online registration. Like what? We're in 2022, but anyways. And it said, um, are you a female or a male or no, what's your gender? And then it says female, male and said, are you, are you, yeah. And then it said, are you willing to pair with somebody of the opposite gender or opposite sex or something? And I was like, okay, but then that's assuming that there's a gender binary. And also what question are you asking here? What are you trying to figure out? That's what it is. You should be, you you have a vulva or a penis, right? And are you willing to pair with somebody with a vulva or penis? Just leave it open because it's just so unnecessary. Yeah. And, and I said, I emailed back and I said, said that to them. I said, um, this is, better language. And I'm like, I'm not the expert on this, but this is what I think needs to happen. And the response I got was, oh yeah, we're aware. We're going to change it sometime in 2023 when we have an online registration system. And I'm like, this takes two seconds on Microsoft Word. I'm like, you're, you're, you have a Microsoft Word document online. This is, I will change it for you. But like, <laughs> and I'm like, but why is this so hard? Cause I'm like, you know what I would see if I was non-binary and I was signing up for this course, I would not sign up. 
Yeah. I would say and that's, you know what, for me. that happens to me all the time when I'm filling out forms. I think what makes me so angry is they are you male, female or other? No, I'm sorry. I'm not an other. I'm still a human being. And also what's so important is to distinguish, like to distinguish the difference between sex and gender. And then also, what do you actually want to know? Do you yeah. want to know what's in between my legs and what was, or, you know, what was assigned at birth? Or do you want to know what is my gender identity? Those two can be ex- completely different, right? Do you want to know if I'm cisgendered or if I'm, you know, non-binary or trans? Like, what are you getting at and why do you want this information? And that's the why. And because a lot of the times it's unnecessary info. For example, um, I was at this conference and I was just thinking about this. And I was like, you know, one of my friends who's transgender said um, he, they, and none of us had written down our pronouns. And yeah. that was like the first day. And I was like, oh my gosh, we should all be writing down our pronouns. And then somebody else brought up a great point. And she's like, but why are we defined by our pronouns at the same time? Because like, shouldn't we all just treat each other as human beings? Because yeah. we were also in a very inclusive space. And I'm like, that's a really great point. We were out for lunch at the time. And the server, who was like 20, was like, hey, girls. And I'm like, excuse me. Yeah. And my friend said, we're not girls. And he's like, oh, hey, ladies. And we're all like, that's oh. not any better because you cannot assume that because we all are sitting and we may look like ladies that we all want to be called ladies. I I. I'm a woman. I don't want to be called ladies because I feel like it's also very, ugh, you know, it's like, yeah, I hate that term. I hate yeah, it. So hey, much. Ladies. And I'm like, <laughs> can you not just not, you know, like just say, Hey, just say, Hey, just say, Hey, like, that's it. It doesn't need any more than that. Yeah. And I, I think some people are very unwilling to change that because that's all they've known is one way. And yeah. I think we'll get there. I I know that there's more of us changing our and not even changing, but like um, accepting more inclusive language, more practices, more inclusive practices. Like for example, there's a holiday called Rocky. I don't know if you know Rocky. Yeah, I know yeah. Rocky. Where yeah. you tie your brother and sister, like it's between yeah. The brothers. sister ties a thread on the brother's wrist, and yeah. the brother then gives the sister a gift or money. And yeah. it's very like okay, but what if you don't have two siblings of like a, a boy and a girl? Yeah. Uh, or what if it's like who cares, right? Like yeah. yeah. And so over the years, I'm just like, all right, we'll just. We'll honor our day together as siblings, but like it doesn't have to be this big like patriarchal thing either. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some people are so sensitive about, oh, that's our tradition. I'm like, yes, and yeah. you can celebrate it, and you can make it a bit better. But that's yeah, and those types of traditions can can and should be changed because if we think back to any of these types of traditions, it also feeds into the toxic male culture, right? Like in that scenario, the brother is meant to protect the sister, but why? Why is, does he have to be the protector? Why can't she be the protector? Why is all in scenarios pressure- when what if the sister is the older one too? Right? It's absolutely. Like- but why is all the pressure on men to be the stronger, physically stronger, the the protectors? Like they're not allowed to be emotional human beings like they're just seen as these protectors who have to go and work and do certain things while these women child you know rear and need protection we're fragile you know women are fragile, fragile beings yeah. that, that need protection it's like and you're like dude we like we grow babies we're like yeah. we, we are like the least fragile of people but yeah. yes I, I agree I loved I love this conversation and I feel like we hit on so many important themes of um acceptance and seeing people for who they are. And I always think it's better to ask if you don't know than assume. Um, 
And even with, you know, I'm just thinking about my own practices, like how can I make it better? Because it's not about feeling ashamed or like, oh, I, I screwed up. It's about then do better. Right. Exactly. Uh, and I think we all help, like, like your midwives, like your, the nurses who were in the hospital that night, they could all do better Yeah, absolutely. because they met you. And yeah. they, they hopefully learned from that experience to yeah. not dismiss, you know, people who are coming in with, with these very real life, life threatening concerns. And that's what it is, right? Like, I think the biggest piece is like you, you get this information and you do something with it, right? Yeah. Like that you absorb it and then you make change. And I think the only way to evolve um, is to actually change and to listen to what needs to be done. And for, for me and for my family structure, I rely heavily on allyship and allyship isn't just sitting next to me and be like, yeah, great. I, I come to pride. No, it's actually when you see those forms, you make, you demand change for those forms. When you see anything happening in your school systems, you see any form of homophobia showing up, you see your, you hear your kids saying anything, you intervene, you make a point to make sure that your kid isn't the bully on that playground. Um, who's making my kid feel the way they feel maybe because they have a different family structure, but it's not just my family structure, right? It's any family. So structure many is different from the, the quote unquote, typical or normal, even, um, even parents with, um, or single, single parents, families absolutely. probably feel that pressure too, that yeah. uh, there's this assumption that you must have the father another or the parent. mother or the, yeah. the, another parent. Yeah. Um, and I also and, think and it's important. Just- Sorry. Imagine just being that child who constantly has to correct people. Like, no, I only, I have a mom. No, I have two moms. No, I like, yeah. it's exhausting for the kid as That's well. It. Right. Yeah. And like, as adults, we don't like being asked the same question over and over again. So why are we going to tell, like, do it to our kids? And I think it, it also wears down on them or becomes more of their identity than yeah. it, it needs to be like your identity. Like I often think my identity doesn't have to be the things that make me different, but it has become that because of how many times it's been pointed out. Yeah. Right. My identity could be something else. Maybe I'm an artist or maybe I'm, you know, something else, but it has become all of the things that have made me different. And luckily I'm at the point where I'm embracing that for the longest time. I pushed that away. And as kids, we can't expect them to um, withstand the traumas, the micro trauma, the macro traumas of all of these questions asked nonstop. We need to do better for our kids so that they can also do better for their peers and themselves. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. I have some final questions for you that are about you. We've talked about you, but these are more about you. Um, because I want to know everything there is to know about Sophia. (laughs) Okay. What's a book or podcast that has been life-changing for you? Um, I will say the most memorable and definitely life changing uh, was 1619. It's a New York Times podcast um, by Nicole Hannah Jones, um, who is, uh, I want to say a journalist, I think for for New York Times, who basically uh, talks through um, enslavement of Africans of coming to the US and how that shaped the, you know, what became America. But the history and the way she tells the stories are incredible. I've never been so captivated by a podcast and by like, I've never like been so moved by it as well. And so moved to do more Mm -hmm. um, because she gives you so much truth um, in such a, in a way that's just like, holy, whoa, I didn't know all of this happened historically. And it's very powerful. And I encourage anyone who has time um, to listen to it. It's, it's really, really well done. 
Thank you. I've never heard of that. So I'll put it on my list because yeah. I, I do love I, I love listening to and reading things like that are factual, but also based on like things that affect us still now. Right. Yeah. And her voice. Oh, her, she has such an incredible podcast voice. Like I could listen to her story tell all the time. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are three things that you like to do for yourself every day? Yeah, this is a hard one. Um, I mean, make my morning coffee. Need it. Uh, I like putting on my robe at the end of the day. Like, you know, like after my shower, I switch into my robe. I just love it. I don't know why, um, but I just do. And it's this robe that I've had since university. So like 20 years, it's a fleece robe. I'm picturing something kind of cozy, but a little ratty still. Yeah. It's been around for so long. Yeah. So long and I can't get rid of it. I've gotten other ones, but I just, I don't. And, um, uh, I think those are just the two things I think that are really part of my practice and routine. Nice. Yeah. I, I think we all have our rituals or things we do that kind of bring us comfort, make us feel, feel better. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to, I think, be intentional about it so that, I mean, your coffee, you're not going to skip out on, but maybe yeah. if you're having a rough day, you're like, oh, that's something that I could do. Yeah. Um, and we all have, we all have that. So I always like learning about that. So what are you passionate, really passionate about right now? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm super passionate about breaking down systems. Like I, you know, I am really like, I think for my kids, for all kids growing up right now, right? The systems that we've grown up in, I don't want them to grow up in those systems, right? Like the barriers that exist, I want to break those all down. And so that's why, you know, from a career perspective, I've been doing this work for this as in, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion work for about six, six years formally, but about 10 years informally um, is really just to continue to advocate for change, advocate for, for, you know, equity deserving groups. Um, so that I can run myself out of a job. Like my whole vision is that I don't have this job anymore and no one does. Like it doesn't exist because it's just interwoven and that people who like everyone has an equitable chance to succeed. And I think that kind of brings me to my next question is if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? (laughs) That's it right there. That, that if, you know, no, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to change that. I mean, it is part of that, but I think one of the biggest pieces is in healthcare. And I think because of my personal experiences, but I've seen so many countless racialized people go through this is that, that racialized women, I will say, are seen as valued human beings in the healthcare system, that they are taken seriously and that they matter in the system, that their lives matter. Um, That's, yeah, that's truly what I would want to see changed. I want to see that change too. Yeah. We deserve it. Not even deserve. We are owed that. Absolutely. Basic human Absolutely. privilege right. of being it's human. It's human right. right? It's human right. Yeah. Um, and what do you think is your mom's strength? I like to think that it's my ability to be open and transparent with my kids. Um, you know, and, and try to answer, like I, I try to unlearn a lot of what I've learned while raising my kids. Um, Because he, my son the other day had asked me about what's overweight or something around weight. And I was like, okay, okay, this is my opportunity to do something different because, you know, my mom would have just answered or my parents would have answered in any way that wouldn't be okay to say right now. And whereas I was like, well, 
you know, it's, it's not about being overweight. It's, you know, it's about, I started talking about how like your organs or your insides feel good or don't feel so good. It doesn't matter the size of your body on the outside just matters how you're feeling on the inside. Like, are you feeling like, yeah, if you wanted to get up and run, could you do that? Or would you feel like not so great about, you know, you, maybe you feel out of breath more than you want to. And so trying to explain that because I also realized like my importance of raising a young man in society and what do I want to impart on him and Mm -hmm. how do I want him to see women, see men, like see other people, just see other humans and treat other humans. And I don't want him to look at large bodies any differently from small bodies. And so it's like, I, so yeah, that's what it is, is really unlearning um, and being conscious of that. And then just being open and transparent with, with my kids. I can relate to so much of that. You know, yeah. my, I remember once I was changing and my mom pointed to my belly and said, you're fat. And like the initial response probably that I would have had 10 years ago would have been like, I'm not fat. Like, what are you talking about? This is just, yeah. you know, kind of a defensive approach. And I I just said, yep, I have fat. And yeah. I just moved on because yeah. I don't want her to link the, the word fat or, or having fat as something that mommy gets upset about. And that's a bad taboo thing. And there are people, and I, you know, we talk about it all the time. So there are people in larger bodies, there are people in smaller bodies. I had made this offhand comment about my son. I was like, Oh my gosh. I'm like, he doesn't even have a butt because he's so tiny. He's just, he was like, I was as a kid, to be honest, we were, we're the same, same frame, tiny. And now, and then I heard her repeat, Oh my God, he doesn't even have a butt, like literally in the same tone that I did. And I I was like, Oh my gosh, she got that for me. And she yeah. said it yesterday. And I said, remember, we don't say that. Uh, we don't make judgments on other people's bodies. And like, remember, that was something that mommy said that wasn't right. And she's like, I learned it from you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like one mistake. And this is what happens. But it really forces you to be on your toes as, as a parent, yeah. because we want to do better for ourselves and our kids. So but what I love in what you just said was also just acknowledging and telling our kids that we're not right. Yeah, right. Oh, because yeah. Our parents never did that. Never. Like, when did we ever hear an apology? At never. The the night, right? Whereas I'm so focused on repair work. Um, at the end of the night or wherever throughout the day, right? Repair, repair, repair. Like, oh yeah, you know what? I messed up. Yeah, I yelled. I was having a really hard time. Like really letting them in that I'm human. I have emotions. I might mess up, but I'm really trying really hard and I'm sorry. And how can I make this better? Um, and I think that's really important in, in, in you know, raising kids. I think so too. It leads to more empathetic kids, but also I think they'll feel, hopefully they'll feel more loved because- yeah. How, how nice would it have been to have an apology, right? Oh just when goodness, our parents, right? just an acknowledgement that they weren't right, that they hurt you and that, you know, it's just, it, it's repair is so important. And I am, um, you have so many mom strengths. I can just see it now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, with us, with the, with the audience. We are all so grateful for your presence and for your insights and for sharing your story. Where can people connect with you. Thank you for asking. And thanks so much for inviting me here today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been such a great conversation. And it's been thank you for creating the space um, for letting me vulnerable, letting me be vulnerable and emotional. And, and it's been a great conversation. Um, you can find me at S uh, on Instagram at SD dot Apper. It's supposed to be S Dapper, but mm. someone took that. So I had to put a, I had to put the dot in. Yeah. Yeah. I had to put a dot in. So it's S D no. Yeah. S D dot Apper, A P P E R. 
Uh, yeah, that's my Instagram handle. Awesome. I'll share that uh, with the show notes as well. So if people want to connect with you, they can. If you're listening and you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tag us. Let us know your thoughts. Um, Share it with somebody who needs to hear it because there are people in your life who need to hear this. Probably everybody in your life. But really, you know, if you're if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, this person really would benefit from this conversation. Please share it with them. Thank you so much. Thank you so much and have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links and we'll chat again real soon.